We are working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, so if you want to begin turning your attention there. We introduced the book last week and talked about Corinth and the people, and, uh, and uh, we also uh, finished off thinking of, of the beginning of the book where Paul was encouraging them to be who they already are. That, he, he, that they've already been declared to be uh, called by God and saints, and uh, so they needed to act according to their calling. And so uh, the rest of the book from this point forward is dealing with a lot of the issues. The truth is, is that if we belong to Jesus, we are who we are. We are called sons and daughters of God, and it is up to us to act like it. What's interesting, out of all of the problems that we find in the book of Corinth, First and Second Corinthians, and there are some, some big serious problems that are here, the very first issue that he wants to tackle is the subject of unity. And actually we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks, talk about unity, but we're going to think about unity under the gospel itself um, this, uh, this morning as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The movie Miracle tells the incredible story of the U.S. men's Olympic hockey team that beat um, the vaunted Russian uh, team at Lake Placid in the 1980 Olympic Games. Uh, some of you can remember that. For some of you in the room, that's ancient history. And uh, what were the 80s other than something to laugh at? I remember watching that game as a kid. Uh, we lived about 50 miles from Lake Placid, and so there was a lot of Olympic fever in our town. And I remember uh, feeling incredible pride and emotion, even as a young kid, watching those, those young college kids, it didn't seem to be very much older than me, uh, beat grown men that were fully bearded and everything else. Uh, and the movie points out, um, of course, as only Disney can kind of mess up a good story sometimes, but, but they really kind of point out in a pretty authentic way how, uh, how hard driving of a jerk their coach, Herb Brooks, was. And he was. Um, everybody who knew him said he was one of the hardest coaches, the hardest men you've, you would have ever met and ever, uh, and ever um, uh, served under on his teams. But he wanted to unite those boys against himself and then eventually against the Russians. And so he was extremely hard on them. In one particular scene, which is a true scene, uh, the movie retells... Uh, an incident that occurred after a grueling game when, when the boys had actually won, but he kept them on the ice for hours skating lines. Um, he kept asking them who they were and who they skated for. And finally, one of them said uh, he skated for the United States of America. And if you remember if you, from the movie, Herb Brooks finally let them off the ice. And they were exhausted. His desire was that they would learn to play for one another and for their country, to stop being individuals, to become one unit. And so he had to break them down, for, uh, break down within them their personal desire for glory and triumph and medals and all of those other reasons why they were out there skating and, and, and focus on what was at that time considered in, an impossible dream. That team, I don't know, think would exist today. We, we live in an age of personal ambition and lack of sacrifice uh, for the greater good, and that's kind of just a reflection of our culture today. But I'm afraid too often it doesn't exist in the church either. And just like that 1980s uh, men's Olympic hockey team needed to self-sacrifice for the greater good, so too is the church called to live beyond their own ambition and their own goals. Now, there's nothing 
new under the sun. Just like today, maybe a different era than yesterday. It's nothing new. While many attend church to get something out of it, that's not anything new. We are called to attend church to give something back to God, but oftentimes we we come to church thinking, what can I get? We're to be united together to worship our God, to serve one another. That's the calling of the church. But sin causes divisions amongst us, and we need to choose to reject the sin of divisiveness. Perhaps one of the deadliest of all sins for any organization is to divide. One of the most common army tactics are to take your enemy and try to divide them. Drive a wedge down the middle. Cut off elements. uh, Scatter the enemy. And once you can get them to run, and once you can get them uh, to fall apart, it's easy to pick them off one by one. The greatest thing that the enemy can do for our church or any church uh, is to divide and cause division. Because then he can start picking us off one by one. We need to be who we are. We're rescued by grace, by God's grace, through Jesus. And so we need to act like what we are already declared to be. So we're going to think about the sin of division. The sin of division is one that needs, I believe, our primary attention. And out of all the issues that Paul could have begun with, and there were, again, some serious things going on in Corinth, he begins with this issue of divisiveness. And I think it's important for us as we, as we think of who we are as a church and what God wants us to be or, or any other church that we've become a part of is the need for us to function together. We are united under the ministry of the gospel. That whatever we do, we must do it together. We can't do it on our own. So we must decide to be what we are, de- to be to, we must decide to do what we are declared to be. So it begins this way. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Now I exhort you, that word exhortation there, it's a, it's a very powerful emotional word. He is begging them. In and, and, and our day we might say he's on his hands and knees begging them, imploring them. Listen, church, if you can only do one thing, this is what I beg of you to do, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of of you is saying, I'm of a Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or are you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. He begins with this strong imperative, this command to be united together. I just want to think just for a little bit as we, as we look at this passage about the sin of division. The sin of division is especially deadly to the local body. Now There are a number of illustrations of this. Perhaps the, the, the clearest example of this, and the, certainly the first example of this, is found in the book of Acts. Keep your finger here and look at Acts chapter 6. But by the time we get up to Acts chapter 6, things are going pretty swimmingly in the early church. If you remember, after Pentecost, the Spirit descends and, and, and 3,000 people come to faith in one, one afternoon. 
And then from then on out, they're selling their own goods, they're living in common, their the numbers are being added on a daily basis to those who believe. There's been some opposition with uh, the spiritual leaders in the temple. Remember the Sanhedrin where uh, Peter and, Jane, and John are brought forward and, and arrested, but then set free. But for the most part, the church is, is really starting to hum along. Things are going super well. And then Acts 6 happens. Now at this time, verse 1, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose among, uh, on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves... Uh, to prayer, to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept spreading, and the number of disciples uh, continued to increase greatly. The very first source of potential division happens in a kind of a seemingly innocuous thing over food. It wasn't over a theological debate. It wasn't over uh, even necessarily how to spend the money and the resources that were coming in. It's just that there was some division where the, the Hellenistic Jews felt like their widows were being overlooked by the others. Now, we don't know the numbers. We don't know all of the particulars in here other than that this was the, really the first internal crisis in the church. Of course, it will not be the last and how the, the, the apostles were going to handle this division was going to kind of set the framework for how problems were going to be handled from here on out and, and how things were going to be dealt with. See, if, if, if from Acts chapter 6, it was not handled properly, the division between the, the, the Hellenized Jews and the native Jews would have begun and spread and we'd have, would have had two churches from the very beginning. But with great wisdom, the disciples were able to, to pray and to ascertain what God's desire was for them, and they were able to mend over this division. But there were other things that, that quickly arose. Skip forward, if you would, to the book of 1 Timothy. First and 2 Timothy, if you remember, we've talked about this, are written by the Apostle Paul, some of the last books that he is writing right before he dies. And he is getting ready to pass off the scene, and so he is entrusting some teaching to his protege, Timothy, giving him some instruction. So at the time of his writing, this is about 30, maybe 35 years after the incident that happened in Acts chapter 6. There are a number of other potentially divisive issues. We could have looked at Acts 15 when, when there was some discussion, do the Gentiles have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep the law? How, how does the law affect those who aren't Jewish as they come to faith? There were other issues that were, that were arising within the church. But as we time we get to, to, to Timothy, here the second generation of church leaders, there are some really sharp divisions that are rising. Let me just read a couple of verses here in 1 Timothy and then later in 2 Timothy to kind of highlight some of the issues that were going on. 1 Timothy 1, verse 18. This I command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keep, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. 
Now you can see here, as Paul is getting ready to pass off, there is some serious division going on here. They're doctrinal, they're, they're, they're philosophical, how the church should be organized, and certainly they're, they're involving the teaching as opposed to Paul's teaching that he received from the Lord. Uh, skip forward, if you would, uh, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll see that, that, that just him writing that I've handed these guys over doesn't solve all the problems. 2 Timothy chapter um, 2, beginning in verse 14, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, but avoid worldly, worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundations of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. And to skip forward, if you would, to chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, Alexander, who he referenced in chapter, uh, chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, uh, the book of 1 Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. And so you can see that, that in one generation, this, this sin of divisiveness is so pervasive that Paul has to spend some of his last words warning Timothy about these men, and we don't know all the particulars, but he warns them at such a point that he says, I've handed them over for the destruction of their souls. I've handed them over so that Satan himself could destroy them. I mean, this is, this is quite, a, quite, a, quite a, um, a, a, a leap forward from Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4 where, where they love each other so much that they're willing to sell all their goods and live in common together. To the point of, uh, of 30, 35 years later, this, this, uh, this issue of, of uh, division. We are commanded to pursue unity and peace. That is a command that is given to us. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, I'm exhorting you, I'm begging you to pursue unity and peace. Unity and peace. The early church understood who they were at war with. And that the enemy was doing everything that he could to divide and separate the church. Whether it was external persecution through, uh, through Roman leaders and through military leaders and through Herod that was trying to scatter the church like we saw in early Acts, or whether it was internal guys that were coming in like Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander and others of, of their desire, which was, which was to destroy what God was building up. See, if we are going to deal with brokenness in our culture, it requires us to do it together. We can't do it on our own. It's not enough to, for us to say, well, we have a godly pastor and he deals with, with the problems in the church. Or we've got a few godly men who are deacons and we let them handle all of the issues. It requires all of us, whether we're in leadership or not, whether we're, we're even members or not, to hold each other accountable. To say that we are in this together. That we're united together. Because the evil one wants to divide us. The evil wants to, to separate us uh, like a wolf will separate uh, the, the, the weakling lambs from, from the herd. 
so that they can attack and destroy. In fact, Paul, in, in his instructions in other places, he goes on, not only are we, are we to, to be men and women of peace and unity, but we are to actively pursue unity. You know, it's not enough to say, well, I like everybody and I do. We're to actively pursue peace, which means that we are to go above and beyond just simply saying that we're men and women of peace, but we are to actively pursue peace. So, so when you've offended me, that is my responsibility to go to you and say you've offended me. That I'm to pursue it. If I know that I've, uh, that I've offended you, I'm to go the extra mile to say, how can I fix what's broken? How can we be in this together? That we're to actively pursue unity. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul describes uh, this pursuit of unity as the perfect bond of unity. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12, 12 and following, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving, uh, thank, thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We are, we are to pursue the perfect bond of unity. And how far should that be extended? Well, that was one of the questions that the disciples asked Jesus. Remember when they asked him, well, how many times should I forgive my brother? He says 70 times seven. It wasn't 490 times. It was that we are to continually pursue. How long should we, when should we stop? When the Lord separates us physically by death? As long as it's within our, our breath for us to pursue unity and peace. Now that does not mean that we overlook sins and we, we pursue peace at all costs and we're, we're willing to, to, to compromise, right? But it is we are to continually strive with a desire to find unity and peace together. That it is, it is this idea of a perfect bond. It is, it is we are brought together. And what God has brought together, just like in marriage, men should not divorce and separate. That we're to pursue this as a passion. We're to actively pursue unity for another reason is because by pursuing unity, it allows us to emulate the Spirit of Christ. John chapter 13 found last at the last supper passage, John chapter 13. Verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We're to love one another. Now this kind of love means, is including those who we may not like. Right? There are a lot of people that we might think are weird. A little odd. There are a lot of people that we may personally kind of Rub us the wrong way. You know, Jesus didn't say find perfect unity with just those people that are just like you, that think like you, that vote like you, that, that, that listen to the same music as you, that we are to love one another, that all of the world will know that we love each other, not because we like those that are like us, but that we love people who aren't like us, that are completely different than us, that see the world differently from us. Because if two enemies can come together because of a shared love for Christ, then that can show the world that we can find peace with him as well. 
We're to emulate the Spirit of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul says, you know, we need to have the same spirit that was in Christ who, who, uh, who humbled himself. One of the hardest things to find a community together with is the, is the ability to humble ourselves and say, you know, it's not about me. It's about what's good for the body. It's what's, what's good for Christ. I might have my own personal ambitions or, and my own personal desires, but I need to set those things aside for the sake of the unity of the body. That we are to pursue this. Now, unity, this pursuit of unity, is expected of all followers of Jesus. It's expected of all followers of Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter um, 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. It is expected of all of us to be men and women of unity and peace. Now, I don't know about you, but in my experience in, in Christianity, and I, I jotted a couple other references. I, I jotted more references down than we'll have time to look. So, so if I didn't put it down, Romans 12, 9 through 18, and Romans 14, 19 are also part of this command that's given to us. I don't know about you and your experience, but I've met an awful lot of pugnacious Christians. They're willing to fight for everything and anything. They'll fight you over what's the best color in the world. They'll fight you over Bible versions. They'll fight you over music styles. They'll fight you over what the preacher should wear on Sunday morning. They'll fight you over you sitting in their seat that they feel is their assigned seat. They'll fight you over absolutely everything. In fact, there was a, a term that was coined, the fighting fundamentalists. Right? The whole idea was is that we will fight no matter what. We'll argue with ourselves if we have to, if there's no one else to argue with. But the truth is, is that we are to be men and women of peace. And again, it does not mean that we compromise doctrinal truth. That we're willing to die for doctrinal truth. But even in that pursuit of doctrinal purity, as pure as we can make it, that there is speaking truth with love. That there is a need for each of us to be men and women of peace. One of the other things that is interesting when we think of peace is, is that Pursuing unity and peace is the only means of us to be able to worship. Let me show you a verse that, that points this out, actually two, um, in Matthew chapter 5. We're right in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, this, this phrase I think is interesting, uh, a couple of verses, Matthew 5, verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. It was this idea that Jesus was trying to get through and it's reinforced in Romans 15 and Psalm 133 that if we are going to worship God, if we want this right vertical relationship between men and God, that it requires that the, the horizontal relationship be right. All right. If I come up here to preach and teach and I'm fighting with my wife, you're going to know it. Right? It's going to come out. It's going to come out in, in what I say and how I say it to come out and maybe my body language towards her maybe my body language is towards you maybe you and I had a spat and you can tell well, there's something there I don't know what it is I mean he's saying the right truth 
but I'm not hearing it because all I see is this. Right? All I see is that hardness of his heart and his spirit. And, 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 and so oftentimes we think, well, as long as God and I are okay, it doesn't really matter how our horizontal relationships are. But according to Matthew chapter 5 and in Psalm 133 and in Romans 15, that if this horizontal relationship is broken, then our vertical relationship is broken as well because we are called to worship together. That, that you and I, when we worship in this place, it's not just me and God having a great time in a room with other people having a great time with God, that we are uniting together in worship of a holy God. What do you think heaven's all about? It's not just us and an individual, you know, us and Jesus having a great time. It's us and all of the saints of all times worshiping a holy God together. It is only means of truly bringing worship together. Now, there are issues to divide over. I'm not going to gloss over and say there aren't issues to divide over. In fact, as we get into this book, we're going to see that there are certainly some issues in Corinth where Paul says, listen, you guys need to split with some of these people. Because what they're doing is pulling the testimony of Jesus Christ in that community down. And you need to set them aside, set them outside of the fellowship. But when it comes to those issues, we talk in our our membership class, and um, it's something I know I've done with Kimberly at camp with training, about absolutes, convictions, and preferences. You know, there are a lot in Christianity, there are a lot of things that we prefer that we have elevated to sin issues. There are a lot of things that we focus on and we say, well, if he does this or she doesn't function this way, that, that that's a sin or a theological issue. And it's just a preference. And it seems like as, as we're looking at this at 1 Corinthians, we don't know all of the particulars, but, but they weren't theological issues. They were preferences. Some of, the, of this, this church preferred Paul's style and Paul's teaching. Some of them were more uh, in tune with Apollos and what he was doing. And some of them were, now we like Peter the original guy. And some of them were like, no, we're really going old school. We're, we're just Jesus followers. Sources of divisions can vary. The word that's used for uh, divisions here in 1 Corinthians is an interesting word. Um, <clears throat> he says, I exhort you, uh, brothers, in the name that you, uh, of Jesus Christ, you all agree that there be no divisions among you. The word for divisions is a Greek word, schismata. All right, we, we know it better in our English, Anglicized word, schism. All right? Division sounds kind of almost innocent. You know, we, we divide, divide teams. My coach soccer, I divide my kids up all the time. We play 2v2, we play 5v5. There's all kinds of things. We divide kids up by grades, you know, our ninth graders and our 10th graders. We divide boys and girls. And division in and of itself, we understand that, right? We, there are things that we divide over. And, and it, division isn't as powerful as a term as schism is. And schism is really the idea here he's talking about. He's not talking about, you know, some of you, you know, are kind of more Paul kind of guys and some of you are more Peter kind of guys. This was a, this was a great schism, a great chasm that was developing. And the word schism here, schismata, the Greek word means a rendering, a rending or a tearing of something to make it useless. A rending of something as to make it useless. What was happening here wasn't just, I like Paul's preaching, I'm glad he's speaking this week, uh, Peter's speaking next week, you'll like him better. This was, we're taking sides and excluding everyone else. Like Paul's the only preacher. 
He's the only one I listen to. Oh, and I, I just listen to Jesus. Jesus says, I go, I go back to the original guy. It was, it was uh, to such a point in this church that, that it was making the church useless because everyone else said, if you're not with us, you're against us. That's really the underlying idea here. This was not simply, simply, I like the way he organizes his teaching or he tells great stories. I relate to his, you know, his background kind of a thing. It was, I am completely loyal to this teacher at the exclusion of everyone else. What's also interesting in this group of teachers that are listed here is, is that they made Jesus into just another teacher. He wasn't the Savior anymore. He was just another version of the gospel. Kind of like this idea of I'm wearing their jersey and I look down on anybody else that's wearing something else. Right? That it's, that it's I'm, on, I'm on team Paul. If you're on team Peter, you're my enemy. I'm against you completely. Now some try to define and describe what each of these teachers were. He doesn't really give us any insight. He just says that there were these various camps. Some say, well, maybe you know, Paul, the original pastor, you know, there are those that were loyal to him because he led them to the Lord. And others, well, Peter, because they're Jewish in perspective and Peter's that uh, you know, apostle to the Jews. And so, so maybe because Peter has their back, they're, they're loyal to him. Apollos, we, we find, we'll find out later in the book, was very eloquent. He was a good speaker. So there might have been some that say, you know, I really get a lot of meat out of Apollos' teacher. And there are others that just say, well, you know, Jesus, he's, you know, the original OG, the old school guy, the bare bones, it's just me and Jesus kind of a guy. I don't know. We don't really know. We don't have any insight. Other than there was such a schism, there was such a division in this church that they were taking camps and they were dividing up and, and becoming really useless. It doesn't really matter really what each school was emphasizing. They, they, were, they, they were, all of them, all of these teachers were pointing them, all were pointing to Jesus. But the factions had developed their teaching into something else. All right, so it wasn't Apollos' fault that there was a group in Corinth that were following him. Right, they had taken his teaching and developed it into something that he probably would be, would be embarrassed about. Certainly Paul was. You know, as Paul says, I'll use myself in the third person. Say, you didn't, weren't baptized in my name. I wasn't the one who died for you. And I think you could probably just as well put Apollos and Peter in there as well, that they would agree with him. The sources of division can vary. Sometimes it's personality-driven. What one writer called horizontal factionalism. That's how he described it. And that was a pretty good idea. Horizontal factional, factionalism. And we see this a lot in the church. A desire to associate with a better teacher or a better methodology or, or a better party of whatever stripe. Party... Party politics oftentimes divides us. And it, and it kind of comes and goes in waves. You know, some might say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a John MacArthur. I love his teaching. I follow his teaching. And whatever he says is true. To the exclusion of everyone else. Now, John would say, please don't do that. I'm just a guy, just teaching. But sometimes even in, in our own circles, we kind of can develop that, well, no, I, I prefer more of you know, Dr. David Jeremiah, that's more his style and his teaching. I like that a little better. He communicates to me. And we can kind of develop these camps, and we can even broaden that a little further. We say, well, you know, I'm, I'm more Pentecostal or charismatic, and so I've got my camp, and we're kind of always right, and we kind of tolerate the rest of you non-spiritual kinds. Sometimes it, we divide it into in the, in the politics. You know, well, we're conservative. You're liberal. This whole idea 
of, of horizontal factionalism was this patronage. You, you'd have somebody who would lead, um, and, and it developed in the process, it developed, and it always does, it builds walls. And building walls always destroys peace. You know the old adage, um, fences make great neighbors, but they don't make peaceful neighbors. Right? Especially if your neighbor's regularly throwing stuff over the fence, right? Or, or keeping the gate open and letting their dog run into your yard. And it kind of gets irritated, Right? Because fences don't build peace. They just define boundaries. And, and when we kind of divide churches up and, and this is who we are and we define these kind of things, we don't build peace that way. The list of teachers here most likely would have all taught the same thing. In fact, we could, have, we could look in Acts chapter 18, we would find that Apollos actually was corrected by disciples of, of Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, when, when he wasn't teaching the complete truth. The teachers themselves were, were not dividing themselves, but their followers were. Now, sometimes teachers today look to divide. There's some, we, we call them kind of cultish in behavior, say, you know, follow me, I'm the only way. Everyone else is wrong. And when you hear that, you should run. Schisms can happen over all kinds of things. They can seem to be seemingly innocent. They can seem to have nothing to do with church at all. They can have lots to do with church. But schisms happen, and oftentimes when it happens is we begin to exclude other people who aren't just like us. Sometimes uh, sources of division can happen because of our desire within us to always be right. Second, Corinthian, or Second Timothy chapter 2. Some of these final instructions Paul is giving to Timothy 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, he says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Sometimes schisms happen um, because of a desire um, to teach truth, which is a great desire. But the desire to always be right about everything is foolish. There are a great many in Christianity that feel like they've got it all worked out. They've got the, the right theology. They've got the right uh, doctrine about all kinds of things. The truth is we will never fully understand an infinite God with our, in, with our finite minds and speech. It is impossible for us to completely understand God. And anytime we think we're close, we should be warned. Those who put God in a box demand that we get in the box with them. The desire to be right about everything is foolish. It is divisive. Schisms may happen over doctrinal truth or strongly held beliefs. Schisms can also happen over personality clashes. In Philippians chapter 4, a passing comment that Paul makes, again, we don't have all the particulars, but it sure is interesting. We sure would like it. Someday maybe we'll get it. Philippians 4 verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brothers, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony and in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We don't know all the particulars here other than the two women that weren't getting along in the church. 
Sometimes we encounter people who are hard to like or hard to get along with. We don't know the source of this conflict. We don't know what, what brought it up. Was it two strong women? Was it one strong woman and one timid woman who had finally had enough? Was it two timid women that had finally had enough of each other? We don't know. Sometimes schisms happen in church over personality. And Paul basically said, you know what? Get along. Knock it off. March Madness is upon you. Some of you like basketball. Some of you can't stand it. Uh, Some like men's basketball over women's. Some like college basketball over NBA. Some like certain colleges. After today, what started out as 68 teams at the beginning of the week will be down to 16 teams. After next week, there will only be four left. And after next, the week after that, there will only be one. Is uh, your favorite team losing worth not associating with somebody? Now, we don't have a lot of rivalries up here. You know, there's kind of this faux kind of Oregon versus UW you know, kind of rivalry. I can't stand either one of them, so they could both lose as far as I care about. Um, Now, I went to school in North Carolina. And in North Carolina, there are two teams that absolutely hate each other. One is the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the other one is at Duke. They're about 20 miles apart, and they cannot stand each other. That's a real rivalry. Let me ask you, if you were in church and you were a North Carolina fan, sit in, would you sit next to a Duke fan? You think, that's kind of silly, but you know what? There are sometimes schisms happen and divisions happen in church over something as silly as basketball. The truth of the matter is, is that no one who's cheering on those teams in church are going to impact or affect the game one single bit. They're not on the court. Even if they attend that university, they're not playing on the team. And yet sometimes it can become such a passion, something simple as a basketball rivalry can divide brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's kind of something silly. There are lots of other things that become more and more serious. Church splits uh, I've seen over the years in my short lifetime over music styles, preaching styles, dress, control of church finances, biblical preferences. We could make a list of things till the end of of today, uh, of things that you've heard and I've heard, of why churches have split and dissolved. One of the current churches' um, denominations is the United Methodist Church, which is schisming right now, actively schisming between the African church that preaches the whole Bible and the American church that is more nuanced and culturally sensitive. In a year, the United Methodist denomination may not exist. It can happen to anybody, large or small. And Paul is warning the church as he begins dealing with these issues. Listen, church, you've got to discipline yourself to deal with divisions, to be united together. Because the other issues that we're going to look at, if they're not united together, there's no way to solve some of those issues. So what are they united under? Is it just united under a flag? Is it united under a denominational name? Is it united under a locale? What is it they're united under? Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ would not be made voice. What we're united under is the gospel. That is what unites us. 
To fix broken horizontal relationships requires us first to fix the vertical one, which is us and Jesus. The cross is what unites true followers of Jesus. So how do we know what a true follower is? And those that we should, we should separate from. Well, I think there are three questions we should ask coming from the gospel here. First of all, who is Jesus? The very simplest question is, who is Jesus? What unites true believers is, who do you believe Jesus is? It's a foundational, fundamental, doctrinal question. This is a defining difference between our Muslim, LDS, and Jehovah Witness friends. They use the name of Jesus, but they don't mean the same Jesus as we do. So they, don't, they aren't brothers and sisters in Christ. They want to think of themselves that way. They see him as a good teacher. Some of you may see him as an exalted brother. In fact, the LDS will even use the term God to refer to him, but God only in the sense that you and I become gods just like he became a God. It is a different Jesus. So we think, who is it that we unite together with? Well, first of all, it requires us to ask the question, what do you believe about Jesus? The second question we should ask is, what has he done? The message of the cross is Jesus plus nothing else, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. When we add anything to the cross, it diminishes the power and meaning of the cross. So we ask, who is Jesus and what has he done for you? Martin Luther, the the Reformation, sola fidelis, right? Faith alone. That was his passion. Faith alone. Our Catholic friends and many in liberal church will struggle with this. See, Jesus plus becomes minus Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying is, is that, is that, that who, who is Jesus and what has he done through the work of the cross? And anytime we add anything to it, we take away from Jesus. We make the cross void. The third question we ask who is, who is with us is what is the end result? If Jesus' message is watered down in any way, we make the cross void. What does that mean? Well, to be void means it's powerless and meaningless. How do we do it? Well, there are a number of ways. There are a number of people that say, well, I believe in the same Jesus as you do, and, and, and I, I believe that, um, that it's salvation by grace alone, but I also think everyone will be saved. We call that universalism. See, if everyone is going to be saved, then why did he need to come? It makes the cross meaningless, a waste of him and his time. There are others that hold to annihilationism. That, that means that those not saved will just stop existing. Or, in the Middle Ages, somehow we can earn credit through purgatory or indulgences. All of those make the cross void. July 16th, 1054, a date which will live in infamy. The date of the Great Schism. The Pope versus the Patriarch. The Greeks versus the Latins. Rome versus Constantinople. Two different emperors. Roman Empire was still kind of in existence, but they had two different empires, the east side and the west side. Uh, the, the east side, the, uh, the uh, Greek church, emphasized the threeness of God when it came to the Trinity. The Western church, the Roman church, emphasized the oneness of God. In fact, the oneness of God, the Western church, was larger than the Eastern church. And so they pushed through a revision in 598 A.D. 
to the Nicene Creed, which was written almost 300 years before, called the Philoque controversy of where the sun comes from and where the spirit descends from and all of that stuff. But what happened the next 500 years in between the Creeks and the Latins and the East Church and the West Church was a number of issues kept popping up. So the East Church rejected the West because the West didn't have icons. And we look at icons and say, are those idols? They look kind of like idols. And the West said, no, we don't have 3D images of Christ. We have 2D. We have lots of paintings. It's okay to have paintings of Jesus. It's not okay to have images of Jesus in 3D dimension. The latest controversy in 1054, which caused both the churches to come to a blow, was whether communion bread should be leavened or unleavened. That's literally what the Great Schism was over. Because the Greeks said, yeah, it's okay to use leavened bread. The Romans said, oh, no, 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 no. That leaven is sin. And the blood of the body of Christ should not have any sin. So we only use unleavened bread in the West. And what happened, the end result was the Pope excommunicated the whole Eastern Church from the church. And so the Eastern Church excommunicated the West back in return. And for the last thousand years, they haven't liked each other. What was it over? Bread? Idols? Paints? Silly kind of stuff. And yet the result is is that we have Greeks who don't like Romans and Romans who don't like Greeks. And they both think the other's going to hell and are wrong. And that was a thousand years ago. There are church splits in our country that feel like they've been a thousand years old over kind of the same silly things. The gospel itself, as Paul goes on, is what divides. He says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. I'm so glad that Todd really worked this through a couple of weeks ago, our missionary. So I won't spend a lot of time on this, but, but he goes on, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Is not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. But those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The gospel itself divides to those who are perishing, the cross, the symbol of death, looks dumb. I'd imagine if you are drowning in the ocean and some fisherman throws you a fish. Like, how, how dumb is that? A fish isn't going to help me out. I need a life preserver. But it was a symbol of, of, of being embraced with us through the cross. We would look at that and say, that doesn't make a lot of sense. That is not, not very helpful for me if I want to live, if God is going to die in my place. What good is that for me in the end? To those who have been rescued, though, he says it's a sign of life. We can both look at the cross. Those who are unsafe look at it, that's foolishness. Why would God die? Those of us on the other side of the cross look at it and say, that's what gave me life. I live by embracing death, not some kind of weird Christian masochism, but by reminding myself that he died in my place. It's no longer my life, but Christ living in me, Philippians 1.21. To the wise of the world, they look at that at the preaching of the cross and they say, that looks dumb too. 
How smart of it is, is it of God to give his life for people who don't even like him? For all the wisdom in this world, they still haven't figured out life. They still don't understand it. What is the meaning of life is still the number one question on everyone else's mind. Why do we spend almost billions of dollars looking for extraterrestrial life? To make sense of our own existence. Uh, we, we spend countless amount of energy trying to understand life. And God just says simply trust. Stop trying and just simply trust. To, to wisdom, to, to the Greek mind, it makes no sense. He goes on, he says, you know, Jews desire sign. The, the Jewish desire for a sign goes back to the beginning. God promised um, descendants to Abraham, for example. He tried his own methods. I'll try the concubine route. I'll try a number of other routes. None of them seem to be working. And God finally says, if you finally learn to trust me, I'll give you a boy. Israel tested God after all those miraculous signs of Exodus, right? The ten, the ten signs, and then God feeding them and dividing the Dead Sea. And then we find them in the, in the wilderness still complaining. How about Gideon's fleece? Elijah and Elisha's preaching. Uh, we can go on. Jonah and the whale. Jesus' audience who saw miracle after miracle after miracle and they still wanted more. was well, still not quite enough. And I would even propose to you what is yet to come, the tribulation period described as a time of Jacob's trouble is God's desire to still tell Israel, listen, I'm still here and still in charge and in control. The Jews have always sought out signs. The Greeks, as he describes it here, are ones who sought out wisdom. Now, there were tremendous philosophers, and certainly, certainly the Corinthians were well aware of their Greek history. They were proud Greeks. Tremendous philosophers, historians, mathematicians, engineers, scientists. I mean, we can't even build viaducts that last 50 years. Uh, you can go to Europe today and drive on roads that someone built 2,500 years ago. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, still being studied in colleges today. Their logic is still almost indisputable in many ways. For those of you who like math, you're familiar with uh, such things as Pythagorean theorems. All right? These are things that, that have been around for 3,000 years. Uh, levers, machines, calculating machines, arches, all of those things came about because of the Greek mind. They pursued wisdom. But what Paul says is what looks like weakness and foolishness is actually the power and wisdom of God. God in his absurdly dumbest moment is wiser and stronger than we ever could be. And of course, God is never absurdly weird and stupid and dumb. All right, Paul is just using some hyperbolic, state, hyperbolic statements to say, listen, even if God could be dumb, even if God could be powerless, in his, in his minute, very smallest demonstration of power and wisdom, he is so much greater than the, all the wisest of us. See, the cross is a fork in the road. It will, it will force you to take one path or the other. Our job is to bring people to the fork. God will nudge them, but they must choose, and the choice is theirs to make, but it has eternal consequences. Evangelism is the process of bringing people to the fork in the road, not forcing them down one path. But to the unsaved, that fork looks, looks foolish. It looks ridiculous. For those of us who have taken that path and can look back and say it makes all the sense in the world. God has not chosen the choicest of us, but the lowliest of us. He says, consider your calling, brothers. That four there is just, he's, he's saying, listen, think about your own self here for a minute. 
Consider your calling, brothers, that you are not many wise according to the flesh, not many, uh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despise God has chosen, the things which are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Think about how to honestly assess who we are and where we come from. God has not chosen the brightest, most powerful, or the best. And you know, sometimes in Christianity, we're like, boy, you know, if, if so-and-so would come to the Lord, what a great testimony. Not according to the Bible. God's not impressed. If someone from Hollywood comes to know him, he's not any more impressed than if one of us comes to know him. God's not impressed if some great business person comes to know the Lord any more than the person running their own, you know, itsy business. This should remind us of our place and humble us. Paul said um, many things he had many things in his own life to be proud of in Philippians chapter 3. You might remember that, right? He said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Benjamite. I, was, I did all these things. I was circumcised at the right time. I did all the right things. He said, but all of those things, in summary, he says, I count all of them but rubbish. They're garbage. Now, Paul was a wise guy, if you're thinking of from a Jewish mindset. But he said, you know what? Me compared to God is nothing. When we allow our strength and wisdom to divide us, we are not doing God's work. All we have is a gift from God to accomplish the work that God wants done. What oftentimes causes division are the same gifts that God gives to us. When God blesses us with money, sometimes we look down on those who don't, James chapter 2. When God blesses us with children, sometimes we look down on those who don't. Or when God gives us children that are obedient, we oftentimes look down on those who aren't, who have children that aren't obedient. There are all kinds of issues that we can, we can use to divide us. School choice, clothes, where I live, education level, work status, personal care, how eloquent we are, our titles, our position, our sin choices. There are all kinds of things. What I know is, is that as a person, we oftentimes are drawn to people more like us than not. But we should never feel better than others. I've used this phrase before. I think it's just profound when it comes to the gospel. We are simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. That's all we are. We're not special in and of ourselves. Just because we may belong to a church and just because we may have gone to Bible college or we may have done all kinds of things for the Lord, it does not make us better than anyone else. And when we understand that, it should humble us. Division, divisions happen. We like who we like. But schisms are a whole nother matter. For followers of Jesus, we must reject factionalism and pursue unity. It is a command. Christ, Christ and the cross are what unite us. They define who our true family is. And we are not all that we think that we are. In humility, we rem- need to remember our station in life. Pursue unity with one another. Listen, we, 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 we're not better than any church up or down this road. We're not better than other believers in other countries. We're not better because of how we vote. We're not better because of our, you know, our social status in life. The only thing that gives us any station in life is our relationship with Christ. And that levels 
the playing field at the foot of the cross. So what have you done with Christ? Our tendency is to just gather ourselves around people that like us. But we need to look out and beyond and say, you know what, God loves all of us. Red and yellow, black and white, poor, rich, male, female, Democrat, Republic. God loves all of us. His desire is for us to be united together. And the great thing is there's coming a day when all that divides us now will be wiped away and it won't matter anymore because we'll be standing at his feet.